2: How did I even avoid that? Wait a minute. Where am I?
3: Can I help who's next? What? What is this place? This is the afterlife. Okay, here's your purple translucent plastic wrist coil with your key ring attached. Put it on your wrist and never take it off. Your translucent plastic wrist coil is your friend. This one is light purple, which means at the food pavilions, rides, games, and other activities,
2: you just follow the light purple signs. I didn't think heaven would be so... Organized? Well, I didn't believe in heaven in the first place, but I didn't picture this. It used to be looser, but people kept getting lost, and that was just a big headache. You have headaches
3: here? It's just an expression. Uh, so, where's God? God hasn't been around here for the last 58 years or so. He's been living on Earth as a physicist named Neil the Goose Typeface or something.
2: Neil deGrasse Tyson? Yeah, that's the one. But... Neil deGrasse Tyson goes around saying that there is no God. I know. He apparently thinks that's a
3: hilarious way to spend his time. You know what I think would be a hilarious way for him to spend his time? Come back here and fix the Slurpee machine. And help me log some of his inventory.
2: Do I get a, like, a harp
3: or anything? Do I get a harp or anything? No, you get a prize for being the one millionth person to ask me about a harp. It's a purple, translucent wrist coil put it on your wrist, and go on a ride or something. The Jurassic Park one is supposedly really good. Not that I have time. Can I help who's next?
2: I'm so confused. Should I be happy in the afterlife or upset that it's a super annoying theme park? Maybe the show will clear it up. And now he wrote the song In Heaven There Are No Pants, Colin McEnroe.
4: All right. I'm laughing just because Katie Jelarski, who appears in that intro, specializes. She has a special character she does, which is the kind of annoyed and not entirely helpful person at whatever front desk you're at. And it turns out she's even there in the afterlife. Uh, All right. So. Uh, I have several things to tell you before we get going here. One of them is that, and not that it matters to most of you, but this is one of the days when we do something that we call Radio for the Deaf. This is programming that is offered on Facebook Live on the Colin McEnroe Show page. Of Facebook. So if, if you're interested in this, and you would be most interested in this if you knew somebody who was part of the deaf community who wanted to experience a radio show interpreted in American Sign Language, that person would go to Facebook and then to the Colin McEnroe show page where you'll see a video feed. And the video feed will show these two wonderful interpreters, Mary Sue and JK, who are going to interpret this entire show uh, in American Sign Language. So it is a radio show that can in fact be experienced by a person who is deaf. So that's what that is. And you may hear us, we just try to make these be normal radio shows, but things may come up, and if they come up, they come up. So that's number one. Number two, we're talking about the afterlife today. Now I have to say that the afterlife um, is um, a subject with which I am not unfamiliar. Not because I've died and come back or anything like that, but because I've lived for a long time, Right here in Hartford, Connecticut, which for many years, I'm going to say the 90s in particular, uh, the epicenter of so-called near-death studies was within about a 25-mile radius of where I'm sitting right now. A guy named Bruce Grayson, a psychiatrist uh, on the staff at the Yukon Health Center, was doing a tremendous amount of research uh, into near-death experiences. Um, You'll hear him mention or you may hear him mentioned today as we talk about this. Uh, A guy named Kenneth Ring, a professor of psychology, now emeritus at UConn, uh, was also writing a lot about near-death studies. There was also a very interesting woman named Nancy Evans Bush who was um, very involved in near-death studies and had had one of the rare negative uh, near-death experiences. In other words, most people – well, well, you'll see. But most people have near-death experiences. And if they have some kind of experience of, of, of something else, it's usually something else. Yeah, basically pretty nice. But there are a small percentage of people who don't. Um, anyway, so she was here too. There are all these people. And the, there's something called the International Association of Near-Death Studies, IANDS, which was headquartered like right around here because of all these people. It's not anymore, but it still exists. And there's a tremendous amount of interest. There always will be as long as the human race is around, there's a tremendous amount of interest. In whether or not, not there is something that goes on, whether whether death is the end or whether we continue in some form. If we continue in some form, do we can continue as an identifiable version of our old identity, or do we just join some great superconsciousness? And we're not always we're not we're probably ever going to be able to completely pin that down. But we're going to talk today about some of the efforts to do that, and also some of the people who reject all efforts to do this. Returning to our show is uh, Leslie Kane, uh, Leslie. Kane uh, was with us for another show that was also, I think, uh, done in American Sign Language. Uh, she's the author now of Surviving Death, a journalist investigates evidence for an afterlife. Uh, Leslie Kane, welcome back to our show.
5: Hello, Colin. It's so great to be back. Thanks for having me.
4: So this is something that people want to know a lot about. And um, you as a journalist and somebody with a background in public radio, I mean, this is kind of the second time I've asked you a question like this one. But here you are investigating something that a lot of people— particularly maybe the kinds of people who listen to public radio, would dismiss as woo-woo, right? That, that there's, there's nothing more here other than what you see. Uh, we live, we die, there's no God, there's no heaven. Uh, there's no reason to suppose anything different about that. Uh, why even devote a lot of time and resources and talent to investigating the opposite of that? So what's your overall response to that objection?
5: Well, I mean, I think it's it's a rational objection and I had a lot of those uh, beliefs myself before I started this investigation. <clears throat> but, you know, that is the conventional paradigm that we that our scientific community accepts right now that we live in a materialist world and that consciousness is generated by the brain and there's nothing beyond that. But there are also many scientists who take a different view. And you mentioned some of them earlier regarding NDEs, but there are many areas of study on which one can investigate the question of whether we survive death and and so i've tried to pull together evidence from the a, a range of research areas which includes ndes but actually that's only one of many areas and i was actually very surprised colin to discover that there is very interesting scientific evidence papers that have been published by by absolutely highly credentialed investigators That suggests that there may indeed be some kind of survival. We can't prove it, as you said, but there's a lot of very highly suggestive information.
4: So uh, I I want to come back to the NDEs in just a second. But if you were to give an example of something else, something else that was maybe a paper published by somebody with some scientific credentials uh, making a slightly different form of that argument, uh, mention one.
5: Well, there certainly are papers um, involving NDEs by scientists, but there's also some very interesting papers written by a psychiatrist from the University of of Virginia about cases of young children that remember past lives. Mm. And what's really significant about these cases, the, the most significant cases are the ones in which the children are very young, possibly age two in one particular case. They remember very, very specific, specific things, names of people, names of places, information they couldn't possibly know as a as a young child. Uh, knowledge of competence in certain areas that which they might have specialized in, and what they say was a previous life. They have nightmares. They have a lot of emotional reactions to these memories. They play act events that they say relate to the previous life. And what's important is, in cases, in some of these cases, uh, investigators are actually able to find who that previous person was and and determine whether the memories were accurate. And there are some cases in which they were all accurate to the life of one specific person who that child had claimed to be. So that's an example of another area of investigation and evidence which has been published by uh, very competent people.
4: Yeah. So let's stay with that one for a second. And as we get into this, a certain percentage of the Neil deGrasse Tyson crowd is going to go storming out of the room or shut off the radio, but kind of just try to stay with us for a second anyway. Um, So you begin the book with with one such story, the story to which I think you are alluding right now. It's the story of a a, a boy roughly two years old. He has, um, uh, among other things, nightmares where he... Uh, describes being very very vividly being in a plane crash but he also seems to know things that 2 year olds would not know he knows uh, even looking at a picture of an airplane or a toy airplane, the difference between a bomb and a drop tank. Um, uh, there's just no reason why he would know something like this. And his family becomes kind of obsessed. Why does he know these things? What are these other things that he's talking about? And as you say, they work very hard to reconstruct this, and they eventually do start matching up names and stories and details within stories. And, and you know, it's, it's a remarkable and uh, hairs up on the back of your next story as you write it uh, in the book, Leslie Kane. Although some people looking at that story are going to say, well, that's like a family story to which a certain amount of scientific or journalistic investigation ha- has been applied. In other words, it's a family with a story about a little boy who used to say all this peculiar stuff. And it turns out that when they started looking for, for matches, they were able to actually to find some remarkable stuff. But, but does it rise above the level of a family story? I guess that's what I'm asking.
5: Yeah, I mean the critical part and I think that's a really good question and as a journalist I would have the exact same concern. I mean, I'm as skeptical as anybody. Uh the, the point about this case and the ones that are significant is that the the facts, the information that the child m- stated, that the, the the memories that he had, all of these things were recorded were on the record prior to the time that uh the, they've actually found the the past person. So they there's no way that anybody can say, well, this was all concocted after they figure out who the identity of the person was. But you're right. It's ideal to have an outside investigator present from the beginning of that process. And we do have a case in which that did happen, uh, the case of Ryan Hammonds, who I also wrote about in my book. And he was—he had a, a Dr. Jim Tucker, a psychiatrist, was called into that case before just at the very, very beginning – all the memories that the mom that the child had were written down by his mom and sent to Jim Tucker. Before they had any idea about any previous personality, they had no idea how many memories the child would have. And it went on and on and on. And eventually, with this outside investigator, they were able to find who that person was. And there were 55 points that that child made that matched the life of this one person who had died decades before he was born. So because there was an outside investigator overseeing the whole thing, it's very hard to explain as just a family event. Uh, This was all on the record.
4: Now, let's go back to near-death experiences. I mean, one of the reasons that a lot of people who fall under the general rubric of clinicians wind up interested in this subject is because this is an area where you know quite frequently when something is happening there's a clinician nearby because someone's gone into cardiac arrest or, or some other version of that. Um, uh, people who, who are in the medical profession also um, I gather from the book in particular these days uh, there's been so much work done with um, lowering body temperature down to a point where you can sort of stop the death process for a while so you can presumably save somebody Bring somebody back, uh, but but there are now these instances where near death. Barely even covers it. Some of the actual clinicians say, "Oh, we don't call it near death anymore. This person's dead. Basically, dead dead in every way that you can be dead, except that we're we're going to be able to do an intervention and maybe bring that person back." But Leslie, that's one of the reasons that you wind up seeing people who are MDS and researchers getting involved in the whole question of near death experiences, because they're right there when near death experiences happen. So, just in general, sketch out that landscape for us in terms of what the people who study these things are finding out what they see as patterns? What what do they see?
2: Okay,
5: and there's two actually two types of experiences that are important here, uh, Colin. One of them is what we call veridical OBEs, where a person states that they were out of their body during a particular time, and they're able to report back once they're resuscitated what they actually saw and heard during that time. And the second second type of experience, which is probably the one you're most interested in, is the near-death experience in which a person will state that they they travel to some kind of an uh, another dimension, very vivid, very wonderful dimension in which they they say is an afterlife dimension. They often will meet relatives who have died. They'll see bright lights. They'll have this very ecstatic time there. And then they'll be told that their time has not come yet and they have to return to their bodies. And these are life-changing experiences that you know often a, the, the recipient never forgets. They say that they're more vivid and more real than actual daily life, and the, the, the participants are absolutely convinced that this actually happened to them. This is not some kind of a dream or something else. So these are the, these are, this is the nature of the experience in which many studies have been done and many doctors have been interested in trying to get to the bottom of how these things can happen when there's no brain function. That's the key point. Uh, a person should not be able to have any thoughts or memories during the time in which these events occur.
4: Right. And so and one of the things that they do seem to report, and I think this might have been in the study by Bruce Grayson, who I mentioned earlier, is that in in the case of people who have these narratives, when they come back, they report their brain functions being sharper uh, than ordinary, that they, they have more clarity, more sharp brain function at a time when they're essentially flatlining, right?
5: Exactly. And there have been some studies. There were two studies done in universities in Europe that determined that these these, um, experiences were not imagined. They were able to study them in certain ways to show that they were actual memories. They, They met the criteria of a memory, not an imagination. Uh, an imagined experience. And so, yeah, and what's what's really crucial about them is that they suggest that consciousness can function independently of the brain, independently of the body. And as, as a journalist, I feel that the vertical OBEs are possibly even more evidential for that than the near-death experiences in which they're more subjective. They're in another, another reality altogether. But when a person can to describe exactly what happened and what they heard during the time of their surgery when they had absolutely no brain function and these these reports are accurate and they can time them to the to the time because of sounds and so on they can they can actually have a real time scenario as to, to when they actually occurred and document that this person didn't have a brain essentially at that time they were completely dead as far as the doctors were concerned. That, that's what's significant about it. How can consciousness function without a brain? That's the question it raises.
4: All right. So, and just to make it clear to people uh, with these vertical uh, OBEs, uh, out-of-body experiences, what, um, what people often describe also is, I mean, not simply an awareness of what was going on, say, in the operating room that maybe somehow or other seeped into their brain through some porous membrane that we're just not aware of, they can see stuff that they really wouldn't have been able to see or to be aware of lying on the table, right? They can see things that they could report memories, accurate memories of things that you could only see if you kind of got up out of your body and were looking down.
5: Exactly. And they report from the often from the perspective of being up in the ceiling, exactly, and looking down, like they might report that one of the medics had a bald head or something like that. Um, so they are, from this perspective, they often describe being at the top of the emergency room when they're looking down. And sometimes they can even report events and sounds and sights that have occurred in another location, not only in the emergency room.
4: Um, so um, one thing that we should probably say is that not everybody who experiences the clinical symptoms of death or near death. Now, there's not everybody who has you know, some kind of full arrest. Not everybody who even is you know in some kind of protracted state of, you know, no heartbeat or whatever has this, right? It's, uh, they, they've tried to sort of study that and figure out what? Maybe 18, 20 percent of the people uh, to whom these kinds of physical things happen have the NDE.
5: Exactly. I think it's about 20%. And it's interesting because so many uh, studies have been done of of many, many cases, and it always comes around to around 10 to 20%. And um, Dr. Samparnia, who's a resuscitation research specialist from Stony Brook School of Medicine, actually you know people will say why uh, why wouldn't everybody have these experiences and what he says is that it's actually interesting that anybody can even remember them because of because of things that happen inside the brain when your your, your brain is under these severe conditions of trauma um, he's, you know, normally what the mechanism you might need for memory wouldn't be operating. So his belief is, after having studied these cases and talked to many patients, is that many, maybe more people have these experiences, but they don't have the mechanism to be able to remember them once they wake up. It's so that, that's that's an unknown scenario, really, is how many actually have them. And there are probably people, too, that don't talk about it when they come out of their surgery. So, But we can document about 20% of people.
4: Right. And I think Barney is the guy who doesn't even use near death anymore to talk about some of these things. He basically says these people right. are dead. Uh, he likes to
5: talk about actual death experiences because he's documented cases in which somebody might be dead for an hour or two. Mm. And that's because their their body temperature is lowered. And as far as he's concerned, they are as much of a corpse as anybody who doesn't wake up after those two hours.
4: Now, um, very quickly here, and this is something we've actually covered years ago on, on this show, but it's worth saying again. So there are some pretty consistent things that uh, people experience. They don't experience all of them. They don't experience them exactly the same way. But life review is not an uncommon thing, some kind of, sort of speeded up version of your life. Uh, and then progress through a tunnel or a void or something like that, often towards a bright light. Also a pretty common aspect of this, often an encounter with some kind of presence, let's call it for one, just for argument's sake and then some kind of angelic presence that makes them feel very good or, or something very good is, uh, is happening. Um, but not everybody has that, right? Not everybody has or some people have one or two of those and some people have none of those. And there's a small group of people who have very negative uh, near-death experiences. What do you make of that?
5: Yeah, I mean, I'm really not that up on the negative cases, Colin. I know there are some, and um, I don't, you know, I haven't read and studied a lot about them. So it's very hard for me to comment on that. I think the focus, you know, it's, it's so much of the majority of the cases are positive. Mm-hmm. And I think those are the ones that are, that are the best documented cases. Um, but there are some in which people repi- you know, report frightening experiences. Right. So, I, you know, I don't think we know a whole lot about what the dif- you know how what, I don't know how much more we can really say
2: about that right um, well let l- me just l- what it means. Yeah,
4: let me switch gears here uh, we're gonna take a break here in just a second anyway uh, and bring in Robert Lanza, but before we do that i you know when when I look at the skeptical literature about this um you know there's there's kind of two things that are in opposition to one another. When you you, you look at clinicians like Bruce Grayson, who st- study a lot of these near-death experiences, they, they do have some consistency to them and they have some consistency across cultural barriers too. Uh, in other words, people around the world who are part of different traditions have a lot of the same things happen. But I've also read, I don't know if you've encountered this, but I've read in some of the literature that um, that on the other hand, the the religious iconography can vary, that Hindus you know, may have near-death experiences that seem to have a lot of the visual uh, and, and iconographic trappings of, uh, of Hindu religion as opposed to, say, maybe how a Christian is going to have that experience. Did, did, you, did you run into that kind of disparity? And, and if so, what do we do with that?
5: Yeah. I mean, I think that the essential characteristics of the experience are pretty universal. Mm -hmm. But within certain cultures, people are going to interpret and experience things. I mean, their minds are involved. Mm -hmm. So I think the interpretation of that is that the the cultural influence, if, if somebody is a very strong religion and they're a Buddhist, they're going to they're going to interpret things and see things in terms of that, that kind of symbolism, the symbolism that they're familiar with. And somebody else might have a different religious perspective. I think it's more about how they interpret things than it is about what they actually see. But one could also argue that the mind, what is in their minds, you know, it's them that are having this experience. So it makes some some sense that they are going to have an experience which resonates with their own psychology, their own history, and their own way of thinking. But if if you look deeper, you just have to look at the very, very basic elements of the experience, which do seem to transcend uh, cultural differences.
4: All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. You're listening to Leslie Kane. Uh, Her book is Surviving Death, Uh, a journalist investigates evidence for an afterlife. We're going to talk a little bit about how some things that, I don't know, we seem to bring them up a lot on this show, uh, how quantum mechanics and theories of consciousness might uh, play into this uh, with another guest. Leslie will stay with us, and we'll come back after this.
2: After I died and
4: the
3: makeup had dried, I went back to my place. No moon that night, but I a heavenly light shone on my face. Still I thought it was odd, there was no sign of God, just to usher me in.
0: Then a voice from above, sugar-coated with love,
4: said, let us begin. All right, uh, we are talking today about ideas about the afterlife. And I do I know what the public radio audience is like, and there's some of you out there who me actually have turned off the show by now. But some of you out there who don't like anything that seems the least bit woo-woo. And uh, all I can say is, you know, obviously this is something that people have a tremendous amount of curiosity about. Uh, And books about this spend, you know, 95 weeks on the bestseller list because people want to know more. Um, So we're just asking a few questions. We're not grinding any axes here. Uh, And so Leslie Kane is here with us, author of a new book, Surviving Death, a Journalist Investigates Evidence for an Afterlife. We're also joined by Robert Lanza, head of Estellus Global Regenerative Medicine and adjunct professor at Wake Forest School of Medicine. Uh, His latest book, which came out yesterday, I believe is called Beyond Biocentrism, Rethinking Time, Space, Consciousness, and the Illusion of Death. So Robert Lanza, welcome to the conversation that we're having.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
4: And I also quickly want to mention that uh, something that we do that uh, we're hoping that other people will eventually begin to do is we're offering this show on the uh, Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook uh, in the form of a Facebook Live feed carrying American Sign Language interpretation of everything that's being said here today. So if you know anybody who's out there in the the Duff community who would like to be part of this or to to experience this show, we have wonderful interpreters, uh, JK and Mary Sue here with us doing that. All right. So Let's move on here. So, um, Robert Lanza, I I know that your theories, uh, we should say you're a medical doctor and an expert in regenerative medicine. Your theories uh, do take entire books to explain. Do you have sort of an an elevator pitch version uh, of how you see this whole question? Uh, Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, well, biocentrism is a new theory of everything, so it reexamines everything we thought we knew about life, death, and the nature of reality itself, and we think that life is a big accident of physics, but a long list of experiments actually suggests the opposite. So amazingly, if you add life and consciousness to the equation, you can explain some of the biggest puzzles of science. So, for instance, it becomes clear why space and time and even the properties of matter depend on the observer, and it also explains why the universe itself appears to be exquisitely fine-tuned for the emergence of life. And of course, this has uh, implications for death, you know, because of course, death can only occur if you assume there's this invisible matrix out there that's ticking away. And, and bio- c- biocentrism shows that that simply isn't the case.
4: All right, so let's back up and look at a couple of different things here. I mean, one of them is. Uh, let's talk about two things. First of all, let's talk about consciousness. So uh-huh. consciousness famously uh, referred to these days as the hard problem. The specific hard problem is why uh-huh. why do uh, external stimuli produce certain kinds of sensations in the brain that we, we associate with consciousness? Why do I look at something blue and have an experience of blue? Uh, but but the, the, the real hard problems of consciousness are much more layered, right? It seems fair to say it's just something that After thousands of years of thinking about it and trying to study it, we're not that much closer to knowing what consciousness is.
1: No, that's absolutely right. It's only been recently with the advent of quantum mechanics that we've revisited the entire question. Uh, You know, for many hundreds of years, we always just assumed that, you know, everything just evolved from atoms, just randomly dumb movements uh, when led to us by accident. And we now know from a long list of experiments that that that's simply not the case, that the observer and the observed are correlative. You can't have one without the other. And one of the, the, the big problems, as you mentioned, you know, which is the hard problem of consciousness is, you know, where did consciousness come from? And, and of course, you know, we know, you know, with Einstein, that, you know, he said that, that, that space and time are relative to the observer. And, and actually, I just published a, an article in the same journal he published his uh, original relativity journal uh, theories in the anal the physics, which I took that one step further, and instead of space just being relative to the observer that we, in fact, created very much as Immanuel Kant had said many, many years ago. So they're not the hard-code objects, uh, but but are rather the tools of our consciousness. So, you know, when someone asks, you know, where does consciousness come in from? Without consciousness, there's simply no such thing as space and time. They're, they're the tools of, of of consciousness.
4: So I guess then the question would become, um, in terms of the, the inquiry that we're on right now, when we think about that and when we think about consciousness, I mean, one possibility, for example, is that consciousness is kind of another kind of field, if you think about field theory. But, but that wouldn't necessarily mean that we, we as observable or definable entities would persist after death, right? Maybe our consciousness would just go back to some field from which it arose?
1: Well, I think, well, first of all, if you look at all of what the, the experiments are telling us, I think it's, it's silly to think that, that death occurs, or we've been taught that death occurs. And, it, again, that only can occur if you assume there's this invisible, magical matrix out there ticking away called time. And, again, biocentrism simply shows that that's not the case. Our individual bodies are, are of course, destined to self-destruct. We all know that. But the alive feeling, the me feeling, that's just a 20-watt fountain of energy in the brain. And this energy doesn't just go away at death. And, and one of the surest axioms of science is that energy never dies. It can't be created nor destroyed. So life is, is an adventure. It transcends our ordinary linear way of thinking. It, it's sort of like a perennial flower that returns to bloom in the multiverse. And, and the best way to think of this is that you can't see through the bone that surrounds your brain. Everything you see and experience right now, the radio, the walls, uh, that's just a whirl of information that's occurring in your mind. In space and time are the objects uh, that are not like the pebbles you pick up on the beach. And if you wave your hand through the air and you take everything away, what's left? The answer is nothing. The same applies for time. So space and time, again, are the tools the mind uses to put everything together. And, and, and with regard to death, even Einstein uh, said, he said, after the death, it was after the death of his old friend, he said, now Besso has departed from this strange world a little ahead of me. That means nothing. People like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent delusion.
4: Right. Somebody once said that uh, time is what keeps everything from happening all at once, and that space is what keeps everything from happening in the same same place all at once. Um, So, well, first of all, let's hear from a physicist who's not on board with this. He was mentioned earlier in the show, but let's hear Neil deGrasse Tyson.
1: Put me in the ground. Let the worms, microbes, come in and out of my body. And the energy content of my body that I had assembled over my lifetime— consuming the flora and fauna of this earth. My body then returns to them, and thus is the cycle of life. But you're not conscious and that's for eternity, right? Uh, yeah, there's no evidence that I have any consciousness of anything. And by the way, is that so weird? Did you have consciousness before you were born? Were you saying, how come I'm not on earth? My gosh, I need to be on earth, or how
3: co- where am I? No, there's just the state of non-existence.
4: Um, Actually, this is maybe a good time to bring uh, Leslie Kane back into the conversation. and you get to talk back to Neil deGrasse Tyson, even though uh, he's not there. But what we're hearing there, Leslie, is a strictly materialistic or materialist view uh, of how this stuff works. And, and I'm not sure how much you've gone into the, the, the aspects of consciousness that, uh, that Robert Lanza's is investigating. But I do know that, that your book does deal, at least to some degree, with that whole questions, question of the persistence of consciousness.
5: Yeah. And, and and Robert, just to tell you, I have a tremendous respect for your work. I'm so thrilled that you're on this segment with me. Um, Thank you. And I no, I mean, I'm not in any position to be able to deal with uh, Robert's work. I'm not a scientist. But, you know, I think one of the, I mean, I respect very much the position of, of, of Neil deGrasse Tyson. I don't, agree with it. And I think one of the problems is is when you've actually experienced some of the things that I've experienced directly, with particularly with mediumship uh, and you know, with the NDEs, and when there's all this evidence that things are happening in the realm of consciousness that go beyond the physical body. I mean, fine, he can have his opinion, but I'd also love to ask him how he could explain these things, and I'd love to have him experience them for himself. And then try to explain them. I mean, there are forces, there are things that happen that we cannot explain in terms of uh, phenomena that that, uh, seem to be involving consciousness – but do not fit into the the paradigm of a materialist universe, and that's that's a fact, as far as I'm concerned.
4: Yeah. Robert Lindsay, in a, a few minutes, yeah. uh, we're going to uh, yeah. switch gears and bring uh, and, uh, and thank you guys, and bring in somebody who who doesn't really believe any of this. But is, you're somebody who lives with uh, one or both of your feet inside the scientific scientific community. You're a medical doctor. A lot of this must be at the Neil deGrasse Tyson level. Just incredibly unfashionable to be talking about, and and I also know from my own experience that talking about quantum mechanics uh, when you're not a physicist, physicists always tell you you're wrong, no matter what you say. <laughs> you know, you can just open a, a book and that they wrote and read it out loud to them, and they'll go, "No, you've got it wrong, and it's not what it is at all." So, uh, talk a little bit about that. How, how does that work when you start um, opening some of these ideas up, particularly to scientific colleagues?
1: Yeah, absolutely you know you know uh you know scientists are just people like you and i and the, the, the situation is, is, is that they're sweeping a, a long list of experiments uh, you know, under the table. You know, what, someone once said, uh, I think it was author Schopenhauer, all truths pass through three stages. First, they're ridiculed, then they're violently opposed, and then third, they're accepting as, as being self-evident. And, and so you can't expect a, a new paradigm to just appear. Uh, again, uh, another quote from Max Planck, he said, a new scientific truth does not triumph by making its opponents see the light, but because they die and they're replaced by a new generation, that's familiar with it. And that being said, there's a long list of experiments, you know, as Leslie had mentioned, that have just been swept under the rug. So one of the cornerstones of quantum physics, and it's not hard to understand, is something known as the two-slit experiment. So mm-hmm. when a scientist watches a particle pass through two slits in a barrier, the particle behaves like a little bullet and it goes through one hole or the other. But if you don't watch it, it can go through both holes at the same time. So how is it possible that a particle out there can change its behavior on whether you watch it or not? And, and, and this is at the heart of of the problem of quantum physics? And the answer is simple. Reality is a process that involves our consciousness, and it's a long list. Heisenberg's famous uncertainty principle. If there's really a world out there with particles just bouncing around, then we should be able to measure all of their properties, but you can't. So, for instance, a particle's exact location and momentum, they can't be known at the same time. So why should it matter to a particle what you decide to measure? Again, the answer is simple. The particles aren't there. And again, it goes on and on. There's things called entangled particles, particles that can be that are instantaneously connected on opposite sides of the galaxy as though there's no space or time there. And let me just give you another experiment that throws another curve in this that you know uh, lends itself to to what I was just saying is is that you know scientists actually published a paper in the prestigious journal Science just a few years back and they showed that what they did now in the present could retroactively change something that, that had already happened in the past. So as light passed a fork in this experimental apparatus it had to decide whether to behave like particles or waves. And then later on, after they had already passed this fork, a scientist could turn a switch on or off. And what the scientist did at that moment retroactively determined what the particle actually did at the fork in the past. And of course, we live in that same world and we have to come to grips with that.
4: Okay, so um, first of all, I'm 100% with you. I'm even familiar with the experiment you just described. But you know what happens here. What happens is when you talk to physicists about this, what they say is, A, the things, yeah, maybe we live in that world and maybe that maybe the world that we live in is essentially composed of the things that you're talking about but the things that you're talking about aren't our world they aren't actually the way that the world that we live in behaves and that it's too big a jump to talk about quantum weirdness uh, about spooky behavior as uh, einstein called it as about stuff that seems a little illogical uh, or, or or not at all corresponding to our linear understanding of how time and space uh, behave. It's still too much of a jump to say that proves something else. That might pers- prove the percent. Right. So, so what do you say when people say that?
1: Yeah, I, I say that and and, and again, that it, they're not internally consistent. Their logic contradicts itself. They say that you know all these weird phenomena occur in the micro world and it doesn't occur in the macroscopic world, in the world that you and I are in. But with now, in the last several years, there's been new experiments that have come out that clearly show. I mean, there are, are entanglement ridges that go half an inch. I mean, there are things called buckyballs and other gigantic molecules that are 800 atoms that all follow the same rules of, rules of quantum mechanics. So where do the laws of physics suddenly change? At a quarter of an inch or a half an inch or an inch? You don't just arbitrarily say the laws of physics just change here to there. It, it's just simply that, that, that's, that's crazy. And but, but what you're saying is right. When you start to challenge physics, uh, you run into a problem because basically if you're asking for a paradigm change, by definition, a new paradigm always appears as nonsense from what Out from outside of the established paradigm. So, again, I I, I think going back to Max Planck's uh, quote, you know, you're not going to convince them to see the day of light. You're just going to have to have a new generation grow up that's familiar with the new ideas.
4: Right. I'm paraphrasing from uh, Sir Tom Stoppard's play, The Hard Problem, but it does seem at times as though scientific acceptance is like Studio 54. There's somebody standing there uh, at a red velvet rope deciding that certain things get in and some certain things don't get in. And it's kind of Absolutely. interesting interesting to figure out sort of who, who the person is who's standing there at the red ve- velvet rope and and how he decides. Well, we have to take a little break here. We're going to have one more part of this conversation. I want to th- say thanks to Leslie Kane, author of the new book, Surviving Death, a Journalist Investigates an Evidence for an Afterlife, and to Robert Lanza. His new book, which came out yesterday, is Beyond Biocentrism, Rethinking Time, Space, Consciousness, and the Illusion of Death. We're going to come back with a guest who doesn't think death is an illusion. So. Stay tuned for that.
2: show was produced by Josh Nalea and me, kion Wolf, with help from Betsy Kaplan, Jonathan McPants, Katie Tolarski, Ryan Karen King, Tucker Ives, Heather Brandon, Joe Koss, Ray Hardman, and Patrick Scahill. Thanks also to our friends at Source Interpreting, Mary Sue Owens, JK, Pat Clark, and the American School for the Deaf. On tomorrow's show, The Dark Side of Nutmeg. And yes, there is one. And now, back to Colin.
4: So we've been uh, talking about the afterlife. We might have been talking in a way that uh, gives you hope if you want there to be an afterlife. I'm afraid we're going to rain a little bit on that parade uh, as we head down the home stretch here. Joining us is uh, Dr. Stephen Novella, neurologist and assistant professor at Yale University School of Medicine, host host of the Skeptics Guide podcast and president and co-founder of the New England Skeptical Society. So all of that should give you some clue as to where he's going to land on all this. Uh, But first of all, uh, Stephen Novella, welcome to the conversation. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, you're no stranger to the ideas of Robert Lanza. In fact, you've um, re- reviewed some of his writing and uh, thought. Um, give, give me your kind of reverse elevator pitch uh, about the, the claims that he's making.
0: So when you when you start to talk about uh, quantum mechanics and using that to justify basically weirdness or the notion that materialism, the, the notion that the universe is natural and not supernatural. You get into a lot of a lot of problems. So first of all, uh, saying that you need to have an observer in order for uh, you know the particle to decide how it's going to interact or which way it's going to go is completely incorrect. He is completely misrepresenting quantum mechanics. You don't need consciousness. Consciousness absolutely does not need to be in the loop. It just needs to interact with other particles. That's it. Uh, In fact, these these weird quantum effects are very difficult to create in the lab. They are a product of very special situations where we're preventing any interaction among particles. Uh, So just by the fact that, you know, if you have... You know, you know, two particles going through the vacuum of space where they're not interacting with anything. Sure, they're they're going to travel as waves, and they're not going to, you know, declare themselves as being a specific particle and with specific properties in a place until it bumps into something, and then it does. Whether or not there's a consciousness involved, uh, and these weird, very special effects that exist in only certain circumstances, do not scale up. They do not scale up to. The macroscopic world uh, there is a very specific limit and physicists know about this Uh, things have what we call a quantum wavelength uh, which is uh, you could think of this as how much of this weird quantum effects do we see and that's inversely proportional to how big you are so yeah so if you're talking about atoms or molecules the size of the quantum weirdness gets smaller and smaller. By the time you get up to something you can see, something macroscopic, the, the quantum effects have diminished out of existence. They are down to the size of a Planck length. So you know, these, are, these are questions have been answered by physicists uh, that you don't need consciousness. This does not justify any kind of supernatural beliefs that you want. He is simply out of touch. With the scientists on this
4: one, so let's look at it from a, a broader perspective. And, and just, I mean, we've talked a, a bit on the show today about the fact that yeah, there are an awful lot of people who have clinical training or a medical degrees or they're neurosurgeons or whatever who have been trying to look at all this. Like, what what can we say? What can we say that that suggests the persistence of uh, consciousness or in people who are having near-death experiences or people who've just re- really flatlined for a long time? Um, it, Is any of this remotely persuasive or do you feel as though that there's a pretty good biomechanical explanation for every single thing that comes up?
0: Yeah, I don't find any of it compelling at all. So if you take the hypothesis that consciousness is what the brain does, right? It's basically an active process of the brain. Every observation, every experiment, everything we do confirms that hypothesis. Uh, You know, if you turn off the brain, you turn off consciousness. If you alter the brain, you alter consciousness. Uh, when you know when the brain dies, there's no evidence of consciousness persisting beyond that. Uh, the, you know we could do surgery on the brain in a very specific way and make very specific changes to consciousness. Uh, every way you think about it, you could take a drug which alters brain function; and it alters consciousness in a, in a fairly predictable way. So there's no mystery there. We know that the brain is causing consciousness. It is consciousness. It's, the, it's what the brain is doing. Uh, So when you get to these weird experiences, and people have weird experiences because they don't know how their brain works, you know, our brains construct our perception our real-time experience of reality every aspect of it our brain constructs the fact that we feel as if we're inside our bodies that we feel as if we own our bodies and that we control them that the rest of the universe is separate from us these are all actively constructed sensations that our brain is wired to produce and if you interrupt those circuits you interrupt the brain's construction of your sense of reality in ways that are beyond your normal everyday experience, and so it's not surprising that people find these experiences fantastical, unbelievable, hard to uh, really conceptualize. You know, it, to make it seem like it's part of their normal life because it, it's it's just way way too different, uh, and so they invent. Uh, Fantastical explanations for it, but these are no longer mysterious. We know what they are neurologically, we can produce them neurologically. It really isn't mysterious anymore. Um, how about people who
4: return from near-death experiences or, or something like that, um, possessing knowledge that they shouldn't have, things that uh, transpired in, in their vicinity in the operating room or uh, a shoe that was up on the roof? or I mean, I'm sure you've heard a, a lot of these kinds of stories. Uh, I know that there's been some testing for that, too. W- what do you take away from the testing?
0: So, well, the bottom line is there are no cases that defy conventional explanation. Yeah, as you said, you have stories, but when you look into them, there's nothing unusual going on. And the few times where people tried to do actual controlled experiments, they were dead negative. You know, if you you put, for example, uh, a a target, a, a drawing or a word or something on a high shelf that people don't even know that it's there... Uh, and you and you can't see in the emergency room, for example, but if you were floating by the ceiling, like people claim to be, you should be able to see it, and then you quiz people afterwards. Nobody sees it. Nobody can say what it is. So in any kind of controlled experimentation, there's nothing. Uh, when you look at individual stories,, uh, they're never documented to such a degree that the best explanation is life after death. It's always there's always simpler explanations. Uh, And maybe there's a lot of wishful thinking thrown in. But in terms of hard evidence, we have nothing. We have exactly what you would expect if, you know, there was no consciousness without brain function, just a cultural belief in the existence of that and the desire to believe in it, but no reality. What about the
4: uh, what do you make of the fact that, I mean, uh, it's there are there. It seems anyway that there are plenty of cases of people who are not familiar with NDE literature. Uh, who, you know, have never been told other people's stories about near-death experiences, but then have a near-death experience that corresponds narratively pretty similarly to the basic template, right? So whether it's life review, going towards the light, maybe experiencing an all-loving, all-forgiving presence, uh, you know, in in the presence of that light. What about that notion that people who have no reason to know that story tell that story?
0: Well, first of all, who doesn't know that story? Right? That's like saying, oh, people who like aren't familiar with the standard UFO abduction narrative say the same thing. Everyone knows the standard UFO abduction narrative. Everyone knows the standard life after death or near-death experience story. These things are infused into the culture. So I defy you to find somebody who hasn't been exposed to these story elements. But this also has been studied when you look at people who have near-death experiences and you look at the details of their of their experience, of their memory, it it actually uh, conforms to their culture. Uh, people in different cultures have different experiences that are in line with their belief systems. Uh, there may be some similar elements which are neurological, you know, like the idea of floating outside of your body is pretty pretty common, but that's because that's a neurological phenomenon. But the real metaphysical supernatural narrative elements are culture specific. And I think it's just really it's just silly to argue, like, for example, somebody living in Western culture has not been exposed to these in in some way to the point where if they remember these details, it had to be a real experience that is just not supported by the evidence.
4: All right. We're out of time. No afterlife. I'm glad we're not in a pledge drive right now. People get very mad about this. Um, Stephen Novella, neurologist and assistant professor at Yale University School of Medicine, hope is host of the Skeptics Guide podcast, and president and co-founder of the New England Skeptical Society. Uh, thanks to everybody who helped out with today's show. This was Josh Nilea's baby. Uh, we're also been, we've also we also been doing the show, and I hope you just spread the word about this. If you know people in the deaf community who maybe don't know about this, you know, anywhere in the country— Uh, they can watch uh, an ASL interpretation of the show that we did today on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page, and it'll be up there. It's probably more fun to watch it live, but you can just watch it uh, right now. You can see J.K. and Mary Sue interpret uh, in ASL everything that happened on today's show. and so, So spread the word. We want lots of people to be able to enjoy what we've been doing. We'll be back tomorrow with The Dark Side of Nutmeg. Yes, there is. There's a dark side to nutmeg, and Betsy Kaplan found it. Hi St. Peter, in my lifetime, I helped cure cancer. Wait in line.
5: In my lifetime, I've fed and educated hundreds of abandoned children.
2: Wait in line. In my lifetime, I donated to public radio. Come on in.